The scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, church. I am just delighted to be with you. I've enjoyed my time, and I've enjoyed so much the questions that you all have asked and the interest that you all have shown. It's been a great encouragement to me, and I thank you for your interest in this. Well, Mother Teresa is a household name. I think we've all heard of her, and we recognize her as someone whose name is synonymous with mercy and with identification with the oppressed. It was, it was remarkable what she said upon receiving the Nobel Prize in 1979. As she accepted that award, she, she said this, I choose the poverty of our poor people, but I am grateful to receive this Nobel Prize in the name of the hungry, the naked, the homeless, of the crippled, of the blind, of the lepers, of all those people who feel unwanted, unloved, uncared for throughout society, people that have become a burden to the society and are shunned by everyone. To be able to love the poor, to know the poor, we must become poor ourselves, she said. Now, had you asked Mother Teresa where she learned her compassion for the poor and the oppressed, she would immediately have said, from her Lord, from God. And in her words, in accepting that Nobel Prize, you can hear the echo of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, can't you? Though he were rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be rich. Recently, however, this connection between the character of God and the compassion of his devotees has been seriously called into question. And you probably know what I'm talking about. The past 25 years have seen a series of relentless attacks on the character of God that have really been eroding people's faith. I've certainly noticed it among my students, and you may have noticed it among friends of yours, or maybe even in your own faith. I mean, we think about books coming out like that one by Christopher Hitchens entitled God is Not Great. Or we think about The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. You see, these books like this are really wrestling with a, with a fundamental question, a basic issue that we all have to deal with. And that is, if the God revealed in Scripture, if the God that Christians confess really exists, if there really is an all-knowing, all-loving, all-benevolent, and all-powerful God, then how can we possibly account for the immense suffering that goes on in the world? And it stumps me. And I suppose it stumps you too. But it is out of that question that books like these emerge. And then you think, going back a generation before, to the famous atheist Bertrand Russell, who famously said, if there is a God, then he is the devil. Pretty well sums up the argument, doesn't it? But they just don't see how it could possibly be consistent that the God we confess could really exist, could really be active in the world, and there could still be this immense amount of suffering. 
Well, Israel had a very different testimony to God than the one we're hearing these days. And central to that testimony was Israel's experience of the character of God and the defining event of her national epic, the exodus from Egypt. You see, this event for Israel not only defined God's character, it defined Israel's character. And I want you to just note the following ethical imperatives in Israel's law, whose rationale was actually grounded in Israel's own experience of pain and oppression. And I think that you'll see as we look at these that there might be a different way to look at this issue. Let's begin by recognizing the rationale that God offers. He says, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. It's remarkable the number of times in the Pentateuch, the number of times in God's law, that he starts with those words, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And then on that basis, he gives a series of commands. For example, he says, remember that you were a slave in Egypt so that you keep the Sabbath. Deuteronomy 5.15. So their experience in Egypt becomes a rationale for why Israel ought to rest herself and ought to encourage rest among those that work under her care. Or how about this one? Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt so that you release your slaves every seven years. You may not indefinitely keep someone in servitude. Deuteronomy 15, 15. Or, or this one. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Therefore, share your joy and your prosperity with widows, with orphans, and with resident aliens, with those who are truly disadvantaged in your midst. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 12. You see, God insisted that that Israel's formative experience of slavery and oppression was defining for her identity and for her ethic. But all of that was actually rooted in something more basic than that. And that is the character of her God. And for that, we turn to the text that was read for you just a moment ago and that I'd like to reread for you again in Exodus chapter 2 verses 23 through 25, because this is what occupies the central place in Israel's testimony about God, and it's what launches the narrative that is the book of Exodus. And I think it's an appropriate place for us to begin our reflections this morning. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out. It's interesting to note that their cry is not directed in any particular direction, is it? And yet their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites and God knew. That series of staccato statements is actually quite remarkable and quite unusual in Hebrew syntax, in Hebrew grammar. Typically what Hebrew does is Hebrew Hebrew will introduce a paragraph by naming the subject and then following it with a verb. And then the the, the series of verbs that follow that will just have the pronoun, he, right? So typically, this is what Hebrew would do. This is what we would expect. We'd expect it to say something like this. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And he saw the Israelites, and he knew. That would be typical, but that is not the way the text is written. Quite out of the ordinary, every one of these sentences states God explicitly. And what that does is that has the effect of making each of these statements its own paragraph. 
It underscores every one of them. It, it bolds it, as it were. And as a result of that, I want to look at each of these individually and consider the implications for the nature of the God who reveals himself in this defining event, not just for Israel, but for us as well. And let this speak to the objections of those who are questioning his character. But the first thing that this text affirms about God is that God hears the cries of the oppressed. In other words, he is attentive to the prayers that are born out of pain. It's unmistakable, isn't it? And what's remarkable about this is how that, that attentiveness to his people's suffering is actually part of Yahweh's core identity. It's how he identifies himself to Moses, and it becomes the basis of his redemptive plan. You can see this because subsequently in chapter 3, the very same thing is repeated again as he speaks to Moses from the burning bush. Beginning in verse 7 of Exodus 3, it says, Then Yahweh said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their suffering. And then later in chapter 6, verse 5 through 6, he says it again. He says, furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Do you hear that? So over and over again, as Yahweh is revealing his character to Moses, this is what he bases it on. This is where he begins. It has to do with his attentiveness to his people's suffering. That's his core identity. And the interesting thing about it is, I really think that humans of just about every background sense this and thus feel compelled to pray. It's almost as if something deep inside us suggests that someone is listening, and that it is in fact not pointless to look to the heavens and sigh, groan, or even scream. Isn't this perhaps what Paul was getting at in Acts chapter 17, as he observed the objects of devotion on Mars Hill in that text, and he talks about how that every one of us is groping for God. Something deep inside of us suggests he's there and that someone is listening. And for those who suffer, that's actually very important. It's important to believe that you're being heard. I saw a wonderful movie several years ago called Because of Winn-Dixie. Are you all familiar with this movie? Because of Winn-Dixie. It's about a preacher and his daughter who moved to a small town in Florida to work with a church that meets in a convenience store of all places. The preacher is consumed with sorrow because his wife left them years ago and his daughter is beginning to ask questions about what happened to her mommy. Her dad is unable to talk about it, so the little girl makes friends with a dog she meets in the grocery store one day. She names him Winn-Dixie and takes him home. She spills her heart out to that dog and the dog leads her on many adventures through which she comes to meet new and interesting people. And one of the people she meets is a blind black woman named Gloria Dump. Now, when they first meet, Gloria Dump invites the girl to sit down and tell her everything about herself. She says, these eyes of mine, they don't see too good anymore, so I have to see you with my heart. Tell me all about yourself so that I can see you with my heart. At this invitation... This little girl opens up. The girl is also narrating the movie. And at this point, she said something that impacted me deeply. She said, I could feel her listening with all of her heart, and it felt good. 
When I heard that, I realized, perhaps for the first time, how powerfully listening communicates love. I think my wife has been trying to tell me that a long time. <laughs> but I got it now. Just how powerfully listening communicates love. And so God wants his people to know, I hear you. I hear your cries. I hear your sighs. I hear your groans. I hear you. And that means something to those who are suffering. God even hears the unintelligible groans arising from souls so crushed that there are no words. You'll notice that that's precisely the kind of groan that arose out of Israel in this text. Go back and look at it with me again. After a long time the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out. Not to anyone in particular, you see. That's what we do when we suffer. But guess who hears it? Guess where that cry finds a home? Guess where that groan finds an inclined ear? Guess where? The text tells us, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. He heard that aimless cry, that despairing sigh, that groan that didn't know who to turn to or whether or not anyone was listening. God was listening and he heard it. And even when the groan cannot form words, the Holy Spirit will turn them into words. Because the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, speaks suffering fluently. Therefore, one of the Holy Spirit's jobs is to translate those groans into prayers. When you hurt so much that you don't know what to pray or simply cannot bring yourself to pray, don't worry. The Holy Spirit is praying for you, expressing to God the Father and God the Son what you cannot. Turn with me for a second to Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 27, where we see what happened to Israel applied to all of us in a remarkable and powerful way. Just love this text, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. But I want you to see the connection between what we've just been reading and what Paul says here. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, the Apostle Paul says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. See, that's what I'm talking about. Israel's experience is an assurance to you and to me that God hears those groans and that the Spirit translates them into articulate prayers. And whether you aimed that groan to God or not, he is the one who hears it and responds. But the text goes on to say this that he didn't just hear that groan, but he fixed his eyes and focused on the suffering of Israel because we are told that he saw. Remember what it said? He said, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the Israelites. Think about that for a moment. Dwell on that for a moment. God sees the plight of his people and the globe, and he sees this not as a disinterested observer, but as one who shepherds history towards blessing and hope. You know, one of the things 
that I think is true of those who suffer is that people who suffer often feel invisible. They often feel like no one sees them. A former colleague of mine at Harding used to give his students an unusual assignment. He would tell them to go to the mall and to sit in a wheelchair for two hours. To just roll around the mall in a wheelchair. And then he said, when you return to class, tell us how it felt. The vast majority said that when they, when they got back to class, they shared that they felt invisible. That that experience really communicated to them how we avert our eyes from those who are disabled. Or we avert our eyes from those who are really suffering. This text reminds us that God doesn't do that. He's, he's not looking as a disinterested person. This is not a disinterested perspective. God wants us to know that he sees the struggle, that he sees the suffering, the pain, the sleepless nights, the unbearable days. He sees them. One of the places where he expresses this most powerfully in some beautiful poetry is in Psalm 56, verses 8 through 9. And if you'll look there with me, you'll see what I mean. The psalmist says this, speaking to God, he says, You yourself have recorded my tossings, have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So you can tell from that that God has a particularly and an acute interest in his people's suffering, so much so that he actually has a record of every time you have tossed and turned in your bed unable to sleep. He has that recorded. Every tear you have ever cried, he has saved in a bottle. Now why? Well, he goes on to tell us why in verse 9. Then my enemies will retreat on the day when I call. This I know, God is for me. You know why God collects your tears? Do you want to know why he records every time you can't sleep at night and you toss and turn, uh, tormented by fear or by guilt or by a situation that you have no control over? It's because he wants you to know that he is on his way. He is on his way to the rescue. And he is moved by what you're suffering through, and he is not looking at it from some disinterested perspective, but as someone who is determined to act on what he sees. This is evident in Exodus chapter 3, verses 8 and 12. If you'll notice, when God is speaking to Moses, he not only says, as he does in verse 7, then Yahweh said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their suffering. But then he goes on in verse 8 to say this, and I have come down. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you see what I'm saying? God hears and God sees so that God can act so that he can move, it all begins to fit together. And this is also, not only is this not a disinterested perspective, but this is not a distant perspective. I'm sorry, but Bette Midler has it wrong. God doesn't see us from a distance. You see, God actually enters into the fray of life in this fallen world. Supremely, of course, in the incarnation of God in Christ. But even before that, he was already doing it in the tabernacle and in the temple. Just, just one example, Exodus 14, verses 9 through 19 and 20, gives a beautiful example of this. This is right at the moment when the Israelites are trapped between the Egyptian army behind them and the Reed Sea in front of them. 
And listen to what God does on this occasion when the Israelites are convinced that they're done for. Moses says to the people, Yahweh will fight for you and you must be quiet. Yahweh said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your step, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it so the Israelites can go. All right, so we see that. But then what happens next is God actually comes down in the form of his glory cloud, in the form of his pillar of fire. And he stands in between the Egyptian army and the Israelites. And he forms a barrier. He stands there between the Egyptians and the Israelites as a fire. He says, you're not getting it. I dare you. I dare you to breach my wall. Isn't that something? What a, what a powerful image. God was there. He came down, just like he said, and he made himself present, and he made his presence felt powerfully to both the Egyptians and the Israelites. So it's not a distant perspective, but one in which God actually comes and enters into the suffering of his people. Listen to what Isaiah says about this in chapter 57, verse 15. This is one of the most beautiful texts in the entire prophecy of Isaiah, and it speaks so powerfully and beautifully to this issue. Isaiah 57, verse 15, God says, For the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. Do you know where you'll find God? Yes, you'll find God in heaven. You'll find God in the highest heights. You'll find him in that holy place. But you know where else you'll find him? You'll find him in the ghettos. You'll find him in the slums. You'll find him reaching down and pulling up those who are oppressed and are broken and lowly. Because that's where God says he loves to dwell. He comes down and he enters into the pain of his oppressed people. He doesn't just stay up in heaven and listen and look. He enters in. It is not a distant perspective. See, I think sometimes we doubt that God sees because of this apparent delay in his response. I mean, we're talking about 400 years of slavery in Egypt. I don't know about you, but I would have given up after 50. I think this is our problem. We doubt that God sees because of this apparent delay in his response. But I want you to think about something. This slow, deliberate, and methodical approach is actually because of the clarity with which God sees the situation. We have to remember something, church. There is more at stake here than just Israel's immediate relief. The larger goals of redemption must never be sacrificed on the altar of instant relief. God has something larger in mind than just saving Israel. He has in mind saving the world, including the Egyptians. And if you've ever wondered why you've had to suffer so long under some oppression, it may be because not only does God love the oppressed, he also loves the oppressor. And he's careful and cautious about the way he enters into these situations because his deep desire is to preserve both the oppressed and the oppressor. Am I right? I want to share with you a story in which God impressed this upon me in a very, very powerful and personal way. My eight-year-old son, Kyle, suffers from mild autism. 
Well, one time we had to take him to Children's Hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas, to have a procedure done. He was having some stomach trouble, and we were trying to see if it was allergy-related or just what the issue was. So we took him to a gastroenterologist, and he had to have that procedure done where they stick a tube down his throat that looks deep inside and takes a look at his stomach to see what's going on. Well, it's the kind of procedure that requires general anesthesia. Well, when we got to the hospital and we were waiting there with our son, the doctor came out to take him back, and he says, now, now one of you parents are going to have to come back with me to help administer the anesthesia. Well, my wife does this. <laughs> because she just doesn't do that kind of thing well, right? She doesn't handle those kinds of things well. I'm the one with a stronger stomach. And so I said, okay. So I went back. Now, there's something you need to know about my son. Because of his autism, he has certain acute sensitivities, one of which is an extreme aversion, maybe even a fear, of having anything covering his mouth. I had to hold that gas mask over his mouth while he went to sleep. He convulsed, he resisted, he fought me, and the whole time I had to restrain him and keep it on him. I will never forget the look in my son's eyes as he looked at me and his eyes said, you betrayed me. Betrayal by his own father because he did not understand what was going on. He didn't understand that this was necessary, that this had to be done because of a deeper need, a deeper issue. So I walked out of that procedure and I thought to myself, how many times has God done that to me? And I've looked at him with the same eyes that I just saw my son look at me with. And I will never think about God the same way again. That's what God sees. God doesn't just see the immediate pain. He also sees the ultimate goal. And he may ask you to remain in that pain a little while longer for the purposes of realizing not immediate relief, but ultimate redemption. Are you up for that, church? I hope so. The text also says that God remembers his commitment to his people and to all creation, and that commitment is a commitment to alleviate and ultimately eliminate suffering. But to say that God remembers is, of course, qualitatively different than saying that we remember. We remember because we tend to forget. God remembers because he never forgets. He is eternally aware of his commitments. And the text here makes that point. I want you to turn with me to a passage in Isaiah 49, 15 through 16 that I think is the best commentary on this statement in Exodus 2 that you could find anywhere. It's an incredibly, again, it's a very moving text. And Isaiah is, is a prophet that reflects on the Exodus a great deal. And this is one of those examples. But in Isaiah 49, verses 15 through 16, God once again is addressing his people in a state of oppression. They've lived in the land a long time, they've committed idolatry, they've ignored the law's covenant, and thus they wound up in exile, and so now they are once again oppressed. And in their oppression, they doubt that God remembers them. And now they have two reasons for doubting that God remembers them. First of all, because they're guilty and they deserve to be where they are. Second of all, because they've been suffering this for quite some time, several decades now. And their attitude is, God has forgotten us. I want you to listen to what God says to this very guilty and yet very oppressed people. 
in Isaiah 49, verses 15 through 16. Let's begin in verse 14. Zion says, Yahweh has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. Here's God's response. Verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will never forget you. Look, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I love that. Israel says, you've forgotten us. And God shows his tattoo. I haven't forgotten you. Look, my tattoo. I have Jerusalem tattooed on my hand. Did you know that God has a tattoo? Yeah, you thought that was only for bikers. God has a tattoo. It's a tattoo that stands as an eternal testimony that he does not forget his commitment to his people. He does not forget his commitment to the suffering and the oppressed and the downtrodden. He has them tattooed on his hand as if he needed it. He doesn't, but we do, and so he shows us. See? This is my memory. God remembers. He remembers what he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembered that he told Abraham that it would take 400 years of suffering in Egypt. But then the text goes on to say that God also knows. It's interesting. Look at the way the text says this. Go back to Exodus 2 for a moment and let's read our, our main text again. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob and God saw the Israelites and then it says simply, and God knew. God knew what? It doesn't say, does it? Isn't that interesting? It just says, and God knew. Well, if you want to know what he knew, just go a little bit further to Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, and it's clarified for us. I can assure you that God sees what you're going through and that the sight is moving him to action in your life. I can assure you that God remembers the commitment that he has made to all those who will come to him and seek his mercy and his favor, and I can assure you that God is participating with you in your pain. Now see, that's a God to whom you can come and bring those kinds of burdens. That's a God to whom you can entrust your suffering. I wonder if you would do it right now while we stand and sing. All to Jesus I surrender all to Him I freely 